thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, family. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Welcome to the show. Got a good one for you today. Would like some audience participation, if you don't mind. By the way, we are now The Answer, 860-WGULAM. We are The Answer. And if you're interested in any questions that you might have regarding the show, give us a call at 813-289-1860. That's 813-289-1860. And toll-free outside of the Tampa Bay, Florida area, anywhere in North America, 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. By the way, I am worldwide, Dr. Bill. I'm on the web, 860-WGUL.com. That's 860-WGUL.com. And we are the answer. Well, this morning, if you're joining the show for the first time, I I pick a topic and talk about that topic. So this morning's topic is about the future of medical education. You may say, what difference does that make to me? Well, as you know, we're getting to be an older and older society, and we're having increasing demands for medical care. We have increasing medical problems as we grow older, and we also have another generation or two beneath us who will need medical care. So it is important. It's important that we have some understanding of how the process works, of why we're doing what we're doing, of what's driving it, what the future of it will be. If you can predict it, good luck. First of all, let's talk about how much money the public puts into graduate medical education. That's the education you get after you're out of medical school in a residency, internship, fellowship. These are paid positions after you graduate from medical school and they're further training so that you or me or whoever can have the experience of being a family practitioner and study under those people who are already in practice and who have been certified as competent. It's an opportunity to learn new skills and to learn interpersonal interaction and so there's a lot of drive from the public as well as from the medical community itself to make sure that the funding is adequate and that we receive or that we train the type of doctors we want and need and receive the care that we want and need for our money. So here's the figures, believe it or not. $9.7 billion comes from Medicare. $9.7 billion. Medicaid chips in another approximately $4 billion. Veterans Affairs, $1.4 billion and the Health Resources and Services Administration, about a half a billion. So there's a lot of cash that goes into this, your cash, my cash, our tax dollars at work. And the purpose and the reason of this is that the hospitals that sponsor these programs have to pay the interns and residents and fellows, and they also have to 
make a little profit on it because there's administrative cost in doing all of this. And so we pay through Medicare and Medicaid largely with some from the Department of Veterans Affairs and a little bit from the Health Resources and Services Administration. We're paying, what, that's about $15 billion roughly a year. That's, that's a good amount of cash, and that's what pushes it, and that's why a lot of the hospitals want to have residency programs so that they can get a piece of the pie and also provide for patients, uh, rather provide for doctors so that patients are well covered. So the questions are really, are we as physicians, as doctors, practitioners of the healing arts, or are we social engineers? So we, we have to make that decision, or maybe it's a collision of the two. Are we expected to be both? Although we may not like to admit it at times, the healing arts are primarily scientific applications. You say, well, you're not really scientists. You're not doing research. Well, there's the research scientist and there's the application scientist. We have to have both. We have to have people who do research on structural engineering and earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and the effects on our buildings. We also have to have the people that take that knowledge and put it into practice and build a building that can withstand whatever it is we're going to be exposed to, whether you're on the West Coast and you have earthquakes or you're on the Florida coast and you have hurricanes. So we have to have both. And in that sense, doctors are scientists with an understanding, hopefully, of human behavior and how to approach it, how to approach you. And for us to say that medical education is broken, which a lot of people feel, just like healthcare was broken, or that medical education needs fundamental reforms, is in a sense to negate the system that I was trained under and that most of you have experienced physicians who have come from a time when it didn't need fixing, if that time ever existed. Well, certainly there are new technologies, morals and values, and quote, quote, multiculturalism, whatever that means. But the expectation is that physicians will and must embrace these novelties and deal with them in a professional and interpersonal manner that works. But I don't think there's anything new in that. I mean, that's just the basic Aristotelian logic and learning process that we go through. And I also think that the morals and values and the acceptance of multiculturalism was preached as far back as Hippocrates. And he, in the beginning of his oath, has the physicians say that they will honor all the gods and goddesses, that they'll respect all the different cultural nuances that will present to them. Does that mean I have to take care of a terrorist? No, uh, but what if the terrorist mother comes in and wants to be a patient? I need to have some understanding of what's going on in her life if I accept her as a patient. However, I do think that every generation, as it should, uh, try and do better than the, their parents' generation. That is, they need to redefine themselves, and we all do that. And we sit back and look at our children and our grandchildren, and we say, I've been there. This isn't new. 
And a lot of what I'll talk about, I don't think that the recommendations being made are new either. I think they come up every generation. And we have used the Socratic method, Socrates, since Socrates was in existence, what, 23, 2400 years ago? And Socrates taught Plato. Plato taught Aristotle. Aristotle was Alexander the Great's tutor. And so there was a long line of knowledge that was passed through these gentlemen into someone who actually took it out and put it into practice. You say, well, he was a warrior. Yeah, and a social engineer and a scientist. This isn't new. This has all happened before. The fundamental changes that we talk about are incorporation of our scientific, technological, pharmacological, and teaching advances. And we've had a lot. I mean, let's face it, the information age, the Internet highway, the access to knowledge by anyone from anywhere in the world has really driven us to a new level, another step up. But the problems are going to be the same. And I don't think that we're the only people, the only generation to have experienced what we feel is such a technological and scientific leap. The first century Romans must have felt the same. I mean, the the techniques and the skills and the engineering and the equipment that they had was really unbelievable. The more we investigate and find, the more we're stunned by what they knew And, and our 18th century Founding fathers. Think of all the things that happened in their lifetime. Immunizations, electricity. All kinds of things had changed in their lives and were driving them into a new scientific and a new technological area. The Industrial Revolution. The steam engine. That must have been pretty remarkable for those folks to see. And they must have said, we are the most advanced civilization in the history of the world. Yep, you were. So what's the case for change? Why do people want to change medical education? They want to change medical education because there have been rapid advances in pharmacology, our medications, immunology, our immunizations against the flu and pneumonia and all the different things that we have available now from childhood into senility, including the herpes virus vaccines, the zoster vaccine, and we understand more about the physiology of the body. Of the body, We know more of the biochemistry and the genetics. We've got computers, and we can disseminate all of this information quickly and easily. The Human Genome Project is finished. We've mapped out the whole genome of our DNA, of our genetic material. And we are discovering monthly genes that are causing certain diseases or that are making certain diseases easier to catch. Genes for cancer. That's one area. And we know that if you have certain genes and you have certain environmental pressures like smoking, you're at a high risk to get a cancer. Or like we talked about last week, breast cancer with the BRCA genes and a family history. So we have to think about this in terms of all the new technology 
all the new information, all the new access to it that is available to us. And we have to tip our hat to multiculturalism, to population-based care, or in a sense, herd medicine, because we're being told that we have to allocate the resources more evenly. Well, it's easier to create a vaccine in the long run for the flu and give it to everybody so that we have less flu to treat rather than wait for people to get the flu and secondary pneumonia and those who can afford care will be taken care of while they recuperate through this and others will die because they don't get care. And the advances are even rapider and rapider. It's just unbelievable. So we have an intra and intercultural coalescence of all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of technology, all kinds of folks coming into the profession, as well as all kinds of folks asking for health care. And so we're being told that we need cultural competence and we need diversity in medicine and medical education. And we're also told that we need and we are seeing greater patient participation. So people are more participatory in their care. Not everybody, but a lot of people will research on the Internet, come in with specific questions from the Internet, and they want to participate in their care. And that's easy to see. Medical knowledge is available to all. And if you've got a computer and you can read, you can go look things up. So things are changing. Used to be doctors were gods, and we just sort of dictated. At least that's what I'm told. I never experienced that, but I think there was that impression because of the way a lot of doctors behaved. They seemed arrogant and aloof and detached. And I understand that. So that image of the doctor who was right all of the time and had all the answers to all of your questions, my questions, that image of the doctor is fast dying out. And apparently there is a wide consensus for changing medical education and restructuring and using all this breakthrough scientific innovations. So we have to ask ourselves, are there barriers to the innovations holding back medical schools and residency programs? If so, what are they? New technologies? Teaching methods? What is it that we want and need to change? Change for change's sake is not always good. And a lot of Americans like that. They say, and we've had that for eight years, let's get somebody else. Let's try a different approach. Well, if things are going great, what do you want to change for? Now, if things are not going great, then, yeah, vote in some new folks. Shake it up a little bit. Well, even the AMA is in on this act. Now, I'm not a fan of the AMA, the American Medical Association. I belonged to it when I first got out of residency, and I dropped my membership in the late 80s, early 90s, 1990s because I didn't like where it was going. It was becoming increasingly 
an agent of social change. But they're involved in the research into how to teach new, more, better our young people who are coming through medical school and residencies. And so they started a project, and they've got 11 leading medical schools who are helping them develop new methods for measuring and assessing our knowledge base and our application of it and defining our key competencies, what we need to know for physicians at all training levels. And our training goes on even after we're out in practice. They're striving to create more flexible, individualized learning plans. I'm not sure what that means, but sounds good. Promote exemplary methods to achieve patient safety. I'm all for that. Let's wash our hands after we come out of each patient's room. Let's wear a mask if we have the flu and we're still working. Let's follow the guidelines that have been set up. Now, what if the guidelines are wrong? Certainly, we as physicians have the ability to say, wait a minute, let's take a look at this. And if you look at hand washing and you go to the CDC website, the Center for Disease Control website, there's really not a lot of hard facts about hand washing and certain diseases. Some diseases there is. That staph aureus bug that everybody talks about that can be flesh eating, that's a very sticky bacteria. And it will stick to your hands, and when you touch somebody, you'll pass it on to them. And this is a bug that becomes increasingly resistant to antibiotics over time. So it's a big problem. But there are other things that we don't need to wash our hands for every time we come out of the room. However, to be on the safe side, the CDC is asking us to do that. Okay, but if we can show that that's not helpful, it's not needed, it's just another wasted effort, another waste of, of detergent and water, then maybe we need to rethink that. But we do want to improve our performance at every level. And the, the, the thrust is for patient-centered team care rather than doctor-centered, where the doctor is defining what the needs and, and uh, the outcomes are, or hopefully the outcomes. The patient-centered team care is one that says, we'll collaborate, we'll talk about it. If I'm not sure about a medication, how to convert it from giving it by mouth to in, in an intravenous solution, I'll call the pharmacist. You know what? This isn't that new, but it's new for this generation. I've been doing that since I was a, a kid in this profession. And we want the young people coming out to understand the healthcare system. I'm not sure I understand it. So what is it I'm trying to get a resident or a medical student to understand about the healthcare system? Are we spending too much money? That's one of the big complaints, one of the big cries from those who want reform is we're performing too many unnecessary tests. And then the, the, Physicians will tell you, well, we have to because of the lawyers. If we don't do this and we miss something, then we're going to get sued. And that tries up the cost of medicine. Well, I did research on that last year, and it's really not that much of a drive up 1% to 2%, 3%. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm for it. It just means that we have to put it into perspective. And the thrust, therefore, is teaching awareness of the health care financing and medical training. 
where's the money coming from and where's it going to? That $15 billion I just talked about a few minutes ago, most students and residents in the past would not have known about that. Now they will be taught about it. And they'll say to themselves, that's a lot of money. Maybe I should help save. Do you really need this test? That's where we have to come in with hard facts and good research and show that that test has value not only to the individual but to the society as a whole in terms of saving money, preventing time lost from work, keeping people up and running, not having a chronic illness that somebody has to be treated for and ends up being on the, uh, the public's uh, dollar, so to speak. And so the medical schools are supposedly just answering all this with creative solutions, teamwork, policy, cost, patient safety. Patient safety is a big one. It's a, it's a big deal. We have to make sure that we have the right patient for the right procedure, if we're going to do the procedure, that we take off the, the right digit. So we have to mark right foot, put a big R on that foot. This is it. And the nurses come in and they take a magic marker or a felt tip marker or, or a Sharpie and they write it right on your leg or your foot. Yes, this foot. No, wrong foot on the left. And we've had somewhat of a rigid uh, time frame and uh, curriculum in the past. And, and I can attest to this. Most of the medical schools in the United States required four years in medical school before you could graduate. And, of course, you had to pass your boards and all that. So the time in school is a factor that a lot of people are now challenging. And they are saying, why can't we make it competency-based? When you're competent, then you can go out. And when you're not, you can't. Well, guys, this isn't new. They think it's new, but that's what the old surgery programs used to do. If the director of the program didn't think you were ready to go out and practice surgery, you had to stay in the residency longer. You couldn't go out into private practice. Okay. That may work in some areas, and I'm all for it if it does. What about the individual physicians? Well, there's less emphasis on me personally as a physician and more emphasis as a kid coming out on the interprofessional teams, the teams that work together, whether it's physical therapy or nursing or the laboratory or the pharmacy, which of course is integral. The pharmacy is very important and we have to work closely with those folks. Physical therapy, we have to have those folks. And now we have all the other accoutrements that go along with it, the case managers, because now we have to get people in and out as fast as possible, as long as it's safe. And we have to place them if they're not capable of taking care of themselves or if they need rehab, they have to go to a skilled nursing unit like a nursing home for two or three or four weeks, whatever it takes to get them back on their feet. Why? Because they just had a knee replacement or a hip replacement. And certainly the focus has gone from low technology, according to folks who want change, to high technology. Of course, in the 1970s, when the CT scanners came out, that was high technology. We had it, and it was a very uh, 
how should I say this? It it was very restricted in what you could use it for because of the time demands on the few scanners that we had. Of course, now we can mass produce these things, and they're even more sensitive, and they give better pictures than ever. And this is a great thing because this use of technology, which was high technology in the 1960s and 70s, considered low technology in the 1990s because MRI had taken over, is now coming back as a high-tech tool because you can manipulate the computer and tell it to give you better pictures and at better resolution. So it's a better photograph of what we want to look at, sharper, more detail. And with this comes the ability to take care of many patients on an outpatient basis. Before, if you had chest pain, you would be put in the hospital almost immediately. Now we have technology with which we can check for heart enzymes and see if you have any evidence of injury to your heart from a blocked artery. We have the ability to do EKGs instantly so we can see the electrical activity of the heart. We can even get an ultrasound of your heart in the emergency room or in the doctor, cardiologist's office and see if there's wall motion problems. If, the, if part of the heart is not squeezing and moving the way it should, we can say, well, it looks like that's not getting enough blood flow, and that's why it's that way, and we'll put you in. If not, you go home. We'll do a stress test on you outpatient. We'll do that next week. That's a great thing. So the focus is moving from inpatient to outpatient. Does that mean that hospitals are going to be gone? No. What it does mean is that the resources that we have, that $15 billion I was talking about, is spent more broadly because it's less costly to work up and treat somebody on an outpatient basis than in the hospital. And therefore, it's a better use of the resource, and we can distribute it more evenly throughout the population. We've had limited focus on the cost of medicine as we came through in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and that started to shift, and now we're expected to be stewards of resources that we're supposed to decide with the best knowledge we have, with the best evidence that we have from the studies, the experts, those who are the scientists that are doing the abstract work, and we're the scientists who are applying this, and we're supposed to say, wait a minute, that test costs $250. Does this guy, does this gal really need it? So then we have to sit back and we have to look at the probability of you having that disease and me needing to run the test. And if the probabilities are high or statistically significant, then I need to do the test. And if they're not, then I don't need to do the test and save that money. So the role of young doctors is changing, but not really. Yes and no. And what's going to happen in the future? Well, I like what Sam Goldwyn Mayer, you know, the famous Hollywood guy that has all those movies, Metro Golden Mayer. Remember that? Remember him? He was in the first half of the 20th century. Some of you may be old enough to remember that. He said, I never make predictions especially about the future, which I think is good, you know. 
We don't know what the future is going to be. We can prepare for it, and we can say we want to go in this direction. You know, we can jump in our boat, set our sails, and we want to go from here to there, but the wind blows us somewhere else. We have to adjust. We have to invent better sails, be better sailors, be able to do more with less. And the same thing's happening in medicine. If any of you guys know who Arthur Clarke is, you'll know 2001, A Space Odyssey. He was a scientist and a science fiction writer. And he said, no one can see into the future. What I try to do is outline possible futures. Although totally expected inventions or events can render any predictions absurd after only a few years. And the classic example of this, made in the late 1940s by the then chairman of IBM, was that the world market for computers was five at that time. I have five just within the two rooms I work in at home. I loved what Lord Kelvin said. Now, for those of you who don't know who Lord Kelvin is, he was a scientist in the 19th century, and he actually was the president of the Royal Society of Science in England, in London, from 1890 to 1895, and he said, radio has no future. X-rays will be proven to be a hoax, and heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible. So three of his major predictions were undone and not not in a long not over a long period of time within a few years of when he made these he did this in the 1890s and the wright brothers were what in the 1910-15 era i can't remember the exact date you probably know chris but x-rays were used at the beginning of the 20th century and have continued to be used into the 21st century cat scans mammographies All these things are coming at us, and they're coming at us fast. And we may not be able to completely predict the future, but we can prepare. And we have that ability, and I think that's what we need to do with our young doctors is to prepare them to be prepared for the future. Because it will all change by the time we get all this standardized and written down and put into some kind of a, a a teaching syllabus for medical schools and residency training. When I come back, I want somebody to call me and answer this question. Should doctors be trained to be better understanding and interactive with the patients or to be able to better diagnose and treat the illnesses that the patients come to them with? So here's my number. First one to call, I'll give you that gift certificate, 813 289 1860. That's 813 289 1860 and 877 969 8600. That's 877 969 8600. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and I have the answer. We'll be right back.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Most of the Northeast bracing for another winter blast that could be worse than a weekend storm that brought rain, snow, and sleet. A major snowstorm is ramping up in the Midwest. It could bring blizzard-like conditions and drop a foot of snow in some places. President Obama has sent his condolences as Japan responds with shock to a video purportedly showing one of two Japanese hostages of ISIS being killed. National attention focused on efforts now to save the second. It's an important election day in Greece for the country's financial future, possibly at stake. The radical left Syriza party is the favorite to win, but polls show a lot of people are going to go a different way. And a Western Bank U.N. Security Council statement condemning indiscriminate shelling in Ukraine's southern city of Mariupol that killed 30 people has been blocked by Russia. This is SRN News. The shadow of crisis has passed, and the state of the union is strong. Yeah, so we listen to the president's plan for the country. It's a laundry list of new ways to spend more money. And unless you want to pay for it all, yeah, you guessed it, tax the rich, tax the job makers. This president's tune is getting old. It's time for a Republican-held Congress to listen to the people who elected them and stop this runaway spending. Stop the president's reckless agenda before it's too late. AM 860, The Answer. This is Michael Mendet for townhall.com. The record-breaking success of Clint Eastwood's American Sniper has shocked the Hollywood establishment and produced angry denunciations from Tinseltown leftists. Sniper earned more than $100 million in its first weekend in wide release, the strongest opening for any war movie ever. It also counted as the top January opening in history, easily beating Avatar, the previous record holder, which went on to become the leading box office earner of all time. Eastwood's film isn't comparable to Nazi propaganda, as comic star Seth Rogen suggests. It's a straightforward biography of an American hero who is motivated by his deep Christian faith and carries a Bible into combat. Beyond its popularity and an A-plus rating from the viewers, according to CinemaScore, Sniper won six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, though 84-year-old Clint Eastwood was snubbed for Best Director. Perhaps politically correct Academy voters recalled his anti-Obama empty chair speech, at the GOP convention. I'm Michael Medved. Summertime itches from bug bites, sunburn, and poison ivy need fast relief. Try Gold Bond Maximum Relief Cream with two maximum strength medicines that cool and soothe pain and itch on contact. And for those everyday itches from rashes, dry skin, allergies, even recurring conditions, there's new Gold Bond Intensive Healing Cream with two medicines and seven moisturizers that work a full 24 hours. Remember, for a quick itch fix, get Maximum Relief Cream. And for long-lasting healing, pick up new Intensive Healing Cream. Only from Gold Bond. Use as directed. Building in sunshine today, I-64. It will be mostly cloudy tonight with a shower later on, low 55. We will see a shower in spots tomorrow morning. Otherwise, it will be partly sunny and windy, I-65. Partly sunny and breezy on Tuesday, high 64. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Jeremy Pearson for AM860. The answer. I need a sign. Let me know you're here All of these lines are being crossed over the atmosphere
back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. That was a little bit of Calling All Angels by train. Opining about the future, worrying about it, what's going to happen. And certainly we need to expend some energy to look into the future and try and figure out where we're going and what we'll have when we arrive at that point, what we need, what we want. And we're looking at that in terms of medical education today, medical students, residents, and fellows. And so I've asked the question, if you've been listening, should doctors be trained to better understand and interact with patients and people? Or should they be better trained to diagnose and treat and learn how to deal with people and, and patients as they go? What do you think? First one to call me. We'll get that $25 gift certificate. I'm at 813-289-1860. That's 813-289-1860. Or if you're outside the Tampa Bay area, toll free, 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. And this is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD on The Answer. And so... I'm asking you to give me an answer so you can be part of the show. Oh, boy. So what about medical education in the future? Student rather than teacher-centered, that's one emphasis. Emphasis on student learning rather than teaching. Focus on the student rather than faculty productivity. Change from faculty disciplinary interest to what students need to know. It sounds like a lot of platitudes to me, but I understand that. And certainly, I went through that. And we challenged our dean when we were freshmen in medical school as to what our purpose was. And he had some great answers. I'd known him since I was a baby, so he called me Billy. I said, Dean, what's our purpose? He said, Billy, ultimately knowledge. And I said, yeah, but dean, at what cost? He said, "This, just this side of insomnia and insanity. So I, you know, I've always remembered that. He was a great guy, Dean Keeney. And he and my mom graduated from medical school together. So it, it, there was a lot of history there. And I appreciated what he had to offer and what I received from him. So the, the future, the focus is on the student learning styles rather than the faculty teaching styles. So now we're going to have to figure out what's easier for Billy or and or Susie than John and Jane. I thought we were already doing that somewhat. I mean, some people learn more by taking notes, some by listening to lectures. Some would just like to read and get it and do their own outlines. So that's already in place, but it's not formalized in the sense that we can formalize it with the computers. And that's a big change. So we can have a change in focus from classroom teaching to student learning. And we already have that. We already have that. We have homeschooling where the computer has become central. We have medical education for guys like me who have to stay current. And I can take an online course without leaving the house. I can get 15 to 30 credit hours depending on how long and intense how many hours of study there is, I can take exams to see if I was listening to and understood 
and comprehended and, and internalized the information that I was being given over the Internet. So a lecture in Chicago can be seen around the world without going any further than to the nearest computer that is hooked to the Internet. So these changes, in part, are not really changes being driven by medical education. They're changes that have been enabled by the technology. And so medical education in the future says, well, we need changes in basic science education. We need the emphasis on the principles and integration across entire curriculum. Oh, we had that. Come on. You know, that's not new. But again, this is something that every generation has to relearn and rediscover. And you can integrate this much easier now because you can cross-reference with computers. And the idea that we study a disease, one disease, let's say I'm a resident and I have a patient come in with a heart attack. And so my mission is to take care of this patient and learn everything I can about <coughs> heart attacks, what causes them, how to treat them. And in doing so, I'll learn physiology, pharmacology, anatomy, internal medicine, cardiology. I'll learn all the disciplines. We did that too. We did that too. But we did have formal lectures, and it was not mandatory that you go, but they were there if you wanted them, and if you didn't want them, you could get somebody to tape record or buy notes from somebody else who took good notes and study, use the book. And I have a confession to make, but don't tell anybody now. I don't want you guys telling a soul, but I used to go to the big lectures because it was so easy to take a nap, especially right after lunch when the lights were turned down. And the only problem is if you snored, then the professor might get upset and, you know, throw something at you. Or if you have your feet up on the stage, if you're in the front row and you're resting your feet up there like you do on the coffee table, he might come along and kick him off if you were snoring too loud. But it was a great time to grab a nap. And I woke up intermittently for high points, ingested that, understood what I had to read later on, went back to sleep. Medical education has been this before. It's morphed into larger classes and lecture halls, and now it's morphing back into more individualized. But the father of internal medicine, William Osler, a Canadian who ended up at John Hopkins and helped form the great medical center that John Hopkins is, taught exactly how people are envisioning the future of medical education to be. He did the same thing. Pick a disease, roll up your sleeves, let's take a look at the patient, let's go over here and we'll talk about it. And that's how he taught. And he's considered one of the greatest educators in medical history. He's up there with old guys like Hippocrates and Galen. So that's, that's not new, but... That's fine. Let's try it for a while. So the cognitive science findings are integrated uh, along with the interpersonal sciences, the expertise is on a problem-specific approach, knowledge, not skill-based. And it's dependent upon the student's ability to transform that information into some kind of action. 
Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, the technologies I said is driving it as well. The biomedical information, the simulators and simulations. When I go and recertify every couple of years for uh, cardiac resuscitation, we call it advanced cardiac life support, I have to demonstrate on a dummy all the skills that I have, whether it's compressions of the chest or putting a tube into the patient's airway to help them breathe or breathe for them or starting IVs or whatever it is. There are dummies now that we use, and they're getting better and better. So we don't have to practice on patients or cadavers. And that is a big step forward in medicine that we have that technology and that saves uh, a lot of pain and suffering by the patients for young doctors to learn on them but still that's going to happen you can't teach a junior officer how to be battle ready unless you send them into battle you can give them all the simulations and that's great but eventually they got to go into battle and they got to get their hands a little bloody. And they have to see some of their men die because of mistakes they made or live because of not making mistakes. Hopefully, number two, same way with doctors. No matter how many simulations and simulators we have, at some point we still have to go out and touch the real thing, you and me. So the future of medicine Looks like lectures are going to be decreased. The students will instruct each other. We already did that. See one, do one, teach one. Use of small groups. Uh, we had all that too. We had our labs. We had our pod. We all had little separate areas. And the teachers as facilitators. Well, they did that too. But we'll let these people think they're doing something new. That's good for them. You know, give some some passion. And certainly, if you're going to go into medicine or you're going to go into any profession, especially if it's demanding, you got to have a passion for it. If you go into it for the money, that's the wrong thing. If you make big money because you do a good job and it's something that people want and are willing to pay for, more power to you. But the money is a secondary. The primary is the passion for it. And it is fun, and it is interesting, and it is challenging, not only for the intellectual and technical aspects, but also for the interpersonal. I constantly have to check myself and make sure that I'm responding appropriately depending on who I'm talking to. Some like humor, some don't. Some are sad, some are angry, some are happy. And so all that has to come into play when I present myself and put my interpersonal skills to use. And, of course, the knowledge has to be updated frequently, more frequently, because of the rapidity, the speed with which we're discovering new things and making new connections and finding new science to be applicable to patients and, and disease processes. So... In that respect, the future med-ed is going to have to change. It's going to have to be able to present knowledge and information to doctors and to patients because we want the patients to be interactive in their care quicker, 
newer, better. I can't even read an old textbook from 30, 40 years ago. A lot of it's outdated. That's a great thing, though. So we have to adapt to the rapid change in technology. That's true of all of us. That's not just doctors. And to the dissemination of information and data that we have now with the Internet and the uh, high-tech communications that we have. In personalized genetics and in care delivery in the future, we're going to have to be able to quickly identify or suspect a genetic disease and get that person tested because the genetics are being defined as we sit here and speak. And this will be put into care practice delivery. We may find over time that a lot of the genetic diseases are very rare and that testing everybody for them is not worth the money. And we'll have to find out what the early symptoms are, even if it's in in the womb, in the, in the uterus, in the mama. We're going to have to use these new technologies effectively. We're going to have to think about the cost as well, and they will be decision-making tools as well as tools to save you and me tax money. We want a better, safer, more cost-effective patient care. I think that that's the, the mantra that we've all had for centuries now, and we want to continue to provide a good learning environment for physicians, and part of that's going to be patient care. So they're going to have to go to hospitals and do their residencies and fellowships. Yes, there will be some subspecialties like outpatient family care that don't need as much hospital, do need more hands-on outpatient care in the doctor's office to see what's going to come through the door and what they're going to have to treat. Because if you're in the hospital on call, you may have a heart attack or a stroke or a hot appendix come in. If you're in the office, you're not going to have those things coming in most of the time. They're going to go straight to the hospital, to the emergency room. So then you have to focus on what the everyday patient's going to come in with. High blood pressure, diabetes, arthritis, coughs and colds, pneumonia. And so all that's going to have to come into play. And we will need to continue to keep up and to provide the opportunities for young doctors and nurses and physical therapists and everybody to ingest these new ways of studying and delivering and learning about medicine. And things are going to have to be more flexible, at least in the short run, because we don't know what the future is. But we do want to encourage production of a physician workforce that's better prepared to work in, help lead, and improve an evolving healthcare delivery system so that everybody benefits and we keep the cost down. We want to encourage innovations and in structure, locations, and design of our graduate medical education programs. Why? Because we may not need a pediatric residency in St. Petersburg because we don't have that many pediatric patients. We have such a large older population. But Tampa may need that. And so Tampa says, well, at Tampa General, we're going to have a pediatric residency or the University of South Florida. 
And we say, no, here we need geriatrics. We've got so many older people. So we designed a geriatric program, and we put it here in our area, and we designed the program to revolve around the needs of the infants or the old folks. We need to see where the money's going. We need public policy planning. We need oversight of all this. And we need to ensure rational, efficient, effective use of the funds for graduate medical education because it's our future too. And we need to make sure that the negative aspects of health care are identified quickly and dealt with through better education. So we're going to invest strategically and maintain Medicare GM funding at levels that are adequate and meet the needs of the people. And we may need to modernize the payment methods to the hospitals when they have these graduate medical education programs, these residencies, and they're being paid to have residents in their hospital to learn. And they have to pay for the residents, and they have to pay for their housing and all the different things that go along with being a resident and, and having those needs. So we need to see where the money's going. We need to know who's getting what and how much. We need to know the infrastructure. Now, some people feel that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid should be in charge of this, that it should be part of the Department of Health and Human Services with oversight. There you go, more bureaucracy. And I think that we all have to stop and think about the balance between public needs and controlling a, an out-of-control federal government. We need clinical effectiveness and research, too. We need audits. We need to see what's working and what isn't. We need risk management. We need to know how we can make things safer for the patient, as well as for the employees in the hospital, including me. Are we using a solution on the floor that's too slick? One of my colleagues, Dr. Renke, he went down right in front of a patient's room in the intensive care unit shortly after the floor had just been mopped. And I don't know what they're using different, but it certainly is much, slipper, much slicker. So that's things we have to think about. And we have to plan for, and we have to mitigate the damages from these things. Change the ways we mop the floor. And that seems sort of trivial and insignificant, but I've seen it. I've seen people slip, fall, break a hip, visiting another patient or taking care of another patient. We don't need that. That doesn't save us money. That doesn't do anything for us. But I'll tell you, if you listen to Dr. Bill and the answer, you will have all that you need. This is Dr. Bill. See you guys next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. And $100, $200, three to buy, five, $1,500. It's auction.